Welcome back to the Alcohol Tipping Point Podcast. I am your host, Deb Maisner. I'm a registered nurse, a health coach, and alcohol-free badass. And today on the show, I have Catherine Pope. She has worked as a crime scene specialist and forensic investigator, and she is now happily alcohol-free. And she's coaching others to let go of their habits and hold them back. Catherine started Forensics Found to help first responders manage burnout and navigate a, a fulfilling personal and professional life. So welcome to the show, Kat. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you for having me. Uh, so where are you based out of and like maybe fill in the gaps of the intro that I just did? <laughs> yeah, so I am originally from Maryland and grew up in the D.C. Baltimore region. My dad was actually a D.C. fireman paramedic and my mom and he met at a hospital. He asked her for a pen and <laughs> love at first whatever trauma call. <laughs> So I grew up outside of there and like a responder heavy family. And then I actually went to college in Colorado, graduate school in Texas. And then my husband went and got his PhD at Columbia. So we lived in New York City. And then for some, you know, kismet reasons, we ended up back in Maryland. He got a job at Salisbury University, which is on the Eastern shore of Maryland. So we live like 30 minutes from the beach. It's pretty nice. I didn't expect to come back to Maryland ever, but here we are about I think nine years later this year. Oh, and, lovely. Uh, yeah. For those that don't know, you know, you mentioned that you come from a family of first responders and you you work with first responders. So what what is a first responder? Well, so anyone that responds out into the scene of an emergency, I consider a first responder. So firefighters, paramedics, trauma nurse, you know, doctors, law enforcement, detectives, anybody that goes out there and runs into the into danger. <laughs> and I consider myself a last responder. So I am a death investigator for the medical examiner's office. And we kind of come in after all that crazy dies down and try to figure out you know, what's happened. We handle a lot of the interactions with family members after the fact. We photograph the scene. We interview witnesses and law enforcement or nurses and doctors that helped handle the situation. And then we kind of try to pick up the pieces and figure out what happened in the scene. So other last responders are like funeral directors, social workers, Really anybody I consider a responder that, you know, falls under this umbrella of responder first or last would be somebody that's out there kind of in the community doing this really hard job. So like even teachers, you know, I, I consider teachers a responder mm -hmm. because they're out there in the community kind of trying to change things for the better and, and help folks out and, you know, love people, give them hugs, you know, fix them up, put on the band-aids, figure out what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, as you know, I'm a, a nurse too, but now I'm, I'm on a whole other realm of nursing with my wellness nursing, but sometimes people aren't familiar with that terminology, but a, definitely like a stressful, important mm -hmm. job, just the responders having just erratic hours having difficulty with work-life balance and having, you know, a lot of issues, frankly, with drinking. So what was your experience like with drinking and 
Yeah, when I was a kid, like I said, I grew up in this like public service responder family. And, you know, like my dad would be at work on Christmas or my mom would work these, you know, 48 hour shifts at the hospital and then be home for the rest of the week. But so drinking wasn't a big deal in my family, but it was what was the big deal in my family was always kind of being in service for other people. And I don't think even from a young age, I never really developed the habits and the tools to take care of myself or put myself first. So drinking wasn't a big deal when I was a kid and in college and graduate school, like, you know, everybody drinks. I was drinking. It wasn't really getting, it wasn't interrupting my life. But when I started to get these professional jobs that required me to now show up for other people and, um, you know, then I had babies, I have two kids, you know, you get a house, you get these responsibilities. And then slowly I started ticking down onto like the low part of the the turtle pile. If you're familiar with Dr. Seuss's (laughs) pile of turtles, I was down at the bottom. Oh gosh. So you have to read it. I can't remember his name now, but, um, you know, all these turtles are stacked on top of this one turtle. It's the name of the book. And, you know, he's got to hold all these people, all these other turtles Mm. up and it's a lot of pressure, right? So for me, I guess I just, I had never even considered taking care of myself and like how to do that and what exactly I should do or shouldn't do to make sure that I can, I can step forth into the day and do my job best, you know, as my best self. And so, you know, I, I did, so my husband and I moved to New York city and he was doing his PhD program and I started experiencing some blackouts while drinking. I'm gluten-free. So, you know, our friends would be drinking beer all day, watching the football game and I'd be downing gin and tonics and just like, obviously that's not sustainable or going to bottomless mimosa brunches. And and in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, this is fun, but it's really not that fun. And then I started having kids, you know, and you, you're, I was nursing, I was pregnant, I was nursing and then the kids are little. So I didn't really have time to be intoxicated all the time. But once that sort of started to subside and these other things, the traumatic experiences, the, the responsibilities, the stress started mounting, my drinking got worse and worse. And it wasn't, a lot of people talk about like a rock bottom moment. I don't think I had that. And it's really easy to say like, you know, like I wasn't that guy. I wasn't this bad. Um, I knew that this was not a sustainable practice for me in my life. So I don't necessarily have like a a worst of the worst story, but I did know like, you know, the blackouts started getting more frequent. The, you know, the habit. So like, instead of talking about the tough scene that I went to or the stress that I was having working on call and not seeing my family for a few days because I'm working 48 hours in a stretch, I started turning to drinking wine and having like a bottle of wine instead of doing something that was a little more useful. And so my habits, you know, my exercise habits fell away. I was eating like crap. I wasn't communicating or sharing vulnerably. And I was just drinking wine. <laughs> so I think that's that was where I started to realize that I needed to make some changes. And that was about, that was actually like two years ago, right around this week, which is huge, right? So I've heard research shows that it takes about six years for people to independently kind of kick their drinking to the curb if they're doing it by themselves or enrolling in some sort of program. If you're going at it by yourself, it takes like six years to to really get to where you want to be. And for me, I 
took this thing by the horns and just kind of knocked it out of the park. And really, I, I feel very strong in my alcohol freedom. Like you said, I, I feel like an alcohol-free badass. And I love to just shout it from the rooftops. Because for me, it was like, like this one big domino. It wasn't everything. You know, taking it away didn't cure all the PTSD symptoms. And it didn't fix the burnout. But it did help me actually, like, recognize that there was stuff underneath that that I was just numbing out to. Yeah, so that's that's kind of my story. Well, how did you quit? How did you change your drinking? Yeah, so I bought This Naked Mind by Annie Grace probably a year before I opened the book. (laughs) And I don't know if you did this like in middle school or high school, but I took a paper grocery bag and covered the book. (laughs) Yeah, we had to do that in school. I didn't want anybody to see. I didn't want to, you know, admit that this was something I needed to do for myself. And around that time too, I had talked to my primary care doctor about my my PTSD like symptoms. I said, I think I'm, you know, I'm anxious. I'm not so depressed, but like I'm drinking a lot. I'm really uncomfortable. And she gave me two options. She said, or she gave me two suggestions: go to AA and quit your job. And I was like, well, I'm not quitting my job. I love my job. I went to school for this. I'm really good at it. Fills me up, you know, and I'm certainly not going to AA. I'm a member of my community. I didn't, and I have, this is not based on any fact or experience, but in my head, I was like, there's no way I can show my face at an AA meeting and still feel like I'm a a respected death investigator. And so, so I bought the book. I started to start to think about <laughs> not drinking. And during that time, that first like kind of year, I was like, I can't go one day without a glass of wine, you know, three glasses of wine, five gin and tonics, whatever it was. It was like all of my time at that point in my life was spent like waking up hungover. And then by like 4 p.m., like thinking about what my next drink was going to be. And then by the end of the evening, you know, blacking out or not remembering what I said or starting a fight or all these horrible things that I didn't want to do the next morning, but would end up doing again anyway. So yeah, so I guess it was July, 2020. I enrolled myself in one of the live alcohol experiments that this Naked Mind runs and jumped in, like I said, with both feet, you know, and totally like made it a part of my routine. Every day I would listen to the live coaching every day. I would walk my dogs and listen to the content that they email you. I participated in the community. So I started looking for people like me out there, responders, nurses, you know, cops, death investigators. I found no death investigators that were talking about this, right? So, but I I participated and, and it was huge. And I didn't, you know, I didn't go 30 days that month. But I did string some time together and I learned a ton. So over the next about year, I did a total of four <laughs> live alcohol experiments. And each one that I I did, I learned a little bit more about myself and about booze and what it was doing for me and other people. And I got stronger and stronger. And that's when I started kind of stringing some days together. And um, kind of the thing that tipped everything on its head was, I was like, this feels so lonely. There's plenty of people out there talking about sobriety, but there are no people like me, no death investigators, no last responders. So I was like, I want to be that guy 
that talks about this and starts to talk about being vulnerable and the stress that we see and go through. And I, I signed up for coaching training and ended up becoming certified as a This Naked Mind coach. And from all the kismet and all the universe, I was offered a spot to be a coach in the July 2020 live alcohol experiment. So next week, I get to bring my perspective back two years later after I started my journey for other people. Oh, that's great. That's so, I'm so happy for you. So what do you think is unique about the first responder community and drinking? And you mentioned one thing that was, that I hear a lot. It sometimes doesn't even matter what job you're at, but like, I can't go to AA, I can't show my face and still have my job and be respected. So can you talk a little bit about first responders and, and drinking? Yeah, I mean, it, I think this has always been a problem for first responders, but suicides in law enforcement, ER doctors, you know, any really first responder careers, are, the suicide rate is through the roof right now. And there's been research that shows that individuals who are on that career path don't feel comfortable accessing the mental health resources that they have at their disposal. So your job may do this. I know mine did. We had what's called an EAP, an employee association, something. Employee assistance program. So no one ever used it that I knew of. This is not true in all of, you know, everywhere. I do know some people that did go to theirs and they were great. But when I tried to access mine, I felt nervous that just calling them would negate any sort of like career progress that I would make. And there's actually studies out there from psychologists that show that this is a common belief. You know, it's not true. Clearly you can still progress in your career and you're not going to get fired if you use your EAP, but it's a worry for some people that they're going to be seen weak or, you know, wimpy. I've heard people say like, you know what you signed up for? Why are you complaining? So what I know what I, and what I'm learning is a lot of people feel very alone when they start to feel like they're, you know, they're struggling with what's called what people call work-life balance, which I think is kind of bullshit <laughs> when you're working in a job where you're constantly on call or in the public view. So I think I, I want to bring alcohol freedom to first responders because I think that there's a lot of focus on kind of that, like the crisis of suicide right now and the mental health crisis and like people that are very bad and kind of down at the, at the bottom of the barrel. And, and gosh, I, I can't, there's so many stories about police officers who just like commit suicide because they have, they don't know what else to do. They can't handle their feelings and they can't, they're just drinking all of the time and numbing out. So if I can get if I can interrupt that cycle and I can get at folks way sooner so we can start to just like be comfortable talking about, oh man, I just had to like wake up at 2 a.m. I'm really sleepy. I haven't got a chance to just like rest for an hour. Yeah, that really stinks. Me too. Or, you know, I had another drug overdose today. I'm really getting sick of these drug overdose calls. Yeah, me too. They're really, it's hard to be patient and kind to the families after you start having so many of these cases. When I start to say that to other investigators and saying like, oh yeah, me too, then 
we're no longer looking to alcohol to numb out after those sort of calls or like, I don't know how to process my feelings. So instead of numbing them away, I'm talking to somebody about it and just feeling like I'm not alone has really changed the way I interact with my cases and my families and myself and my kids. Yeah. And you had mentioned PTSD. Can you talk a little bit about what that is and if there's any links to alcohol use or whatnot? Yeah. So I'm learning. I'm not an expert at PTSD other than my own experience. And I'm slowly part of my kind of journey over the last two or three years was began because I got diagnosed with PTSD and I was just having these weird experiences that I couldn't really explain. And my doctor immediately said, oh, well, that's post-traumatic stress disorder. And your brain kind of gets stuck in this kind of hyperdrive, right? So if you have, like back when we were cavemen, you know, you have an intense experience and basically your brain goes into hyperdrive. You either want to fight or flight. And some people argue there's also a freeze mode in there, but a normal brain presses the brake after a while once the injury or the bear or whatever, you know, whatever the input is goes away and you can start to relax and calm down. And that's a normal brain. But when we are exposed to traumatic events frequently and over time and things that don't get resolved necessarily in a normal manner, we have a really hard time pressing that break and calming down and bringing ourselves back to homostasis, which like all of our bodies want to be in and our brains too. So when we're always on high alert, which is what I was feeling after a while, I started expecting the worst to happen every time. I would see like my kids would follow my husband out when he was driving away and I would see them get stuck underneath the car and like get run over. Or we'd be in the backyard and I would watch a tree limb fall onto them, you know, or just imagining things that weren't going to happen. I mean, maybe they would, but I don't know that. And I just started expecting the worst situation. I was full of anxiety, dread. I wasn't sleeping, you know, and I, I wasn't talking to anybody. I was just numbing out with booze all the time. And so I'm sure there's connections between PTSD, a lot of individuals, you know, veterans as well. We haven't even discussed veterans, but a lot of folks in the military mm. field who are exposed to a lot of these loud noises all the time, traumatic events, they will numb out because they don't know how to turn things off and start to shut their body down into a restful, relaxing state. And so I think a lot of our medical community is still looking at it from like an, an input kind of perspective. So, you know, like my doctor wanted to give me drugs and anti-anxiety medications, which we know if you take them while you're drinking, they don't do anything. <laughs> so I kept drinking and my anti-anxiety meds didn't do anything for me. So I think a lot of the work really needs to start to come from within and I think if we start to give responders and veterans and nurses and, and police officers the tools to kind of turn around what they've seen and what they've heard and teach them how to bring themselves back to a calm state, they'll be way more empowered to actually want to do so instead of being like, 
ooh, bad emotions. I'm scared and I'm frightened. I don't like them. Let me turn them off. They can use them, right? Like I'm not not sad anymore. I'm certainly, I feel sad. I get angry still, but now I start to, I can think about how I can use that, how it's a gift. And it's certainly all in all, like my PTSD journey has made me feel more like a human being because I know now that I reacted to all that death and destruction in a totally normal way. My brain works great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's trying to protect you. How how has like your anxiety and PTSD changed since you stopped drinking? It's a complete turnaround. So, yeah, I don't take anti-anxiety medication anymore. I was, like I said, I was in this cycle of where I was just only thinking about alcohol all the time. I would wake up in the morning with a racing heart. I would shame myself and feel guilty about, oh, why did I do this again? I'm such a horrible person. Um, I don't feel that way at all anymore. I find the gift in almost everything. So, you know, my kids are eight and 10 and they have very big emotions all the time and they love to talk with me about them. So we, when I was growing up, we didn't talk about feelings at all. (laughs) And now my kids, they'll cry with me. They'll tell me about how they're scared. They'll tell me about how they're just very happy. They're nervous. And we talk through that sort of thing. and, And I think that that in itself just engenders and creates more of a like a comfortable, welcoming, preparatory, I guess is a good word. Like I feel more prepared now to handle nervousness and worry rather than let it build up to be anxiety. Because you can't plan the future. No one can. We don't know. We love to guess what's going to happen based on experiences in the past, but I don't know. I know that I've now created this life that I don't want to numb to, but I, you know, maybe I will drink again. I don't know that, but I do know that right now I love my life so much that I don't want to have a glass of wine, that I know it doesn't taste good, you know, that I know it doesn't, it's not going to help me process my feelings, that it's going to make me sleep like crap. And that in itself is just like such a gift. My life is so very different and amazing now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can tell you're glowing. <laughs> well, what's some of your tips or advice for people when they are dealing with anxiety or work stress? What are some things that we can do besides turning to drinking? Yeah. I, I started to create a toolbox for responders mm-hmm. because we're never going to change the job, right? Death in my job at the medical examiner's office, death doesn't happen from, you know, nine to five, Monday through Friday. It's always going to be all the time. And other things that we can't change are our resources, right? So hospitals, police departments, medical examiner's office, we are chronically understaffed and underfunded. And it always does seem like the management is terrible. (laughs) We can't change that. And what we can change is what we do with ourselves and our feelings and our thoughts. So I think my dream, you know, the the big goal is to be able to offer this toolbox for responders to be able to kind of control themselves. And that means setting yourself up for success every day. So you want to be sure that you build sleep into your daily regimen, right? So 
yes, I know you're going to be on call for five days straight, but if you can be sure to include an hour on each end of your case, you know, so your kids know this is not the time to see me just because I'm walking in the door. We're not going to interact just yet. I need to go home and go to bed. Or in the summer months, they knew that they weren't allowed to give me a hug until I took off my clothes <laughs> because I probably smelled terrible. But so sleep is a big one. Sleep is kind of is the number one goal for when I started coming down from this thing was like really fixing my sleep habits. And that's, I mean, that's hours and hours of podcasts and reading and <laughs> learning how to kind of integrate your sleep into an on-call life. And that's just making boundaries. Eating and drinking is also big up there, right? So at when I was really twirled up with burnout and PTSD, I was not sleeping. And I was also eating junk from gas stations. <laughs> that is a no-no now. That is a non-negotiable. I will not eat anything that is sold at a gas station. And that is something that I certainly recommend my clients there as having like their go bag with their work boots and their uniform and their flashlights and their, but they also have food already that is healthy and will give you energy, a bottle of water. You know, I never learned this stuff when I was in my field training with my FTO. They never told me to prepare myself snacks. They never told me to like think about sleeping when you can. And so when I introduce this sort of thing to responders, they're like, oh, whatever. <laughs> no. And how, I mean, I don't want to be rude, but how many firefighters or police officers or nurses you've met who are obese and they're not sleeping? And these are medical professionals, right? I mean, I know better than anyone that life is short because I handle death every day. And I also know that natural death is one of the leading causes of death. So I should know that eating healthfully and exercising is very important for longevity. So teaching and actually speaking out to professionals in the responder community about like, yeah, you actually do need to eat a salad. <laughs> that Snickers bar tastes awesome right this second, but it's not going to sustain you for your 12 hour shift. Let's have a salad. And kind of, I, I have learned that like just saying that really helps people kind of like, oh, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> And the one other big thing for me is being vulnerable. So if, if responders don't feel comfortable talking to somebody else, like a therapist, their EAP, um, a coworker, or even a coach like me, starting to write down their thoughts in a journal is really huge. So you don't feel like you're, you know, holding this stuff inside. The, there's actually a community of, of folks that work with PTSD survivors, and they call it mindful decontamination, oh. which... I just love. So, you know, just getting that crap out of your head and onto a piece of paper or sharing it with somebody else. Those are my big things in my toolbox. Yeah, those are great. And they're, I mean, those all sound helpful for any, anybody, no yeah. matter what you're doing, but definitely being aware of like, if you're working shifts and long hours and responding to these high stress calls, have you seen a change in, in the effects of alcohol and the kind like patient population, the kind of like what kind of deaths you're investigating or those kinds of things? Like how has that changed in the last however many years? 
since COVID. Yeah, we've heard. So, I mean, alcohol has always been a thing. And the opiate use epidemic mm, right now is, yeah. has really increased since like 2016, 2017. We've had a lot more drug overdoses in the community. The problem with opiates is like it affects everyone, you know, like young, old, across communities, white, black, rich, poor. That is a very tragic issue that we see a lot of, but alcohol has just always been there. And alcohol is kind of at the baseline of a lot of other things. So car accident, you know, we handle a lot of car accidents. One of the first questions we ask is if there's alcohol on board, do you smell any booze? Are there any bottles in the car? Suicide. It's the, one of the first questions that I ask, is there any alcohol bottles nearby? Is this person a known drinker? You know, and then a like I said before, the natural deaths. So alcohol-related disease is considered a natural death for the medical examiner on the death certificate. So if an individual has, you know, pancreatitis or end-stage liver disease, any of those things that may be a result of years of chronic alcohol abuse, um, you know, we do, we explain and we present that case in a report to the medical examiner, but he'll list that as a natural death. So it's amazing how I see it permeate kind of very many cause and manners of death. Yeah. So is a natural death anything that's not caused by an accident? It's so like, the what manners is the of definition? Death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For the the kind of the reason why the medical examiner or the coroner exists is to sign the death certificate, right? And to, so that you can have a funeral. You have to have a death certificate to have a funeral. The death certificate is signed by your primary care doctor. If you're old and sick and die in a hospital, et cetera, I can go on and on about that. But the medical examiner or the coroner will get involved if there's an accident, suicide, homicide, a death that's unattended. So if you die at home, if you're under a certain age, if there's any sort of decomposition present, which leads to questions of identification, if you're outside, if you're a child, you know, if there's a public health risk, some offices were inundated with COVID while it's a natural death, right? Because it's a disease process. Some of the offices around the country were actually handling those cases and signing death certificates. And it varies everywhere. There's about 3,000 medical examiner and coroner offices in the U.S. And there's about 3,000 different ways to do things. Oh. Um, <laughs> so it's a, it's a complicated field to get in, which leads to a lot of stress for investigators, right? Because there are many different ways to do things. And there's no one career path. So the way I do things may be different from a colleague in New York or Kansas or something. So anyway, the natural death question, the medical examiner might get involved because there's a lot of alcohol at the scene in those cases. And we want to make sure the person didn't fall down and hit their head. Um, you know, they may be very young. People that are in their 30s and 40s can die from natural complications of alcohol use disorder. And when we have somebody that young, we can't really say like they had heart Heart, you know, heart attack and they're in their 60s or they have diabetes and they're in their 80s. We want to make sure that we rule out anything else suspicious or unnatural. Interesting. Okay. So that kind of helps. What would you say like to anybody who's listening and they're wanting to change their drinking and they're in a high stress job? Yeah, it's completely doable. It may seem like you can't go one day without 
a glass of wine or that you're just so tired that you can't add one more thing to your plate. But all you have to do is begin this process and believe in yourself. And you'd be amazed at how far you can come. Yeah, that's like a real message of hope. Like, you can do this. So worth it. For sure. You can do this and it's worth it. Yes, I love that. Well, how can someone find you? Yeah, I have a website, forensicsfound.com. On the Instagrams at, it's called Responders Last Call. And creating a course that should be launching at the end of July, I hope. That's going to be called the Burnout Protocol. That's going to take people through this kind of toolbox that I've created with some bite-sized videos, very you know easy to follow, just some tools and tactics to kind of integrate this sort of thing into your life. And then yeah. I'll be coaching in the live alcohol experiment in July. So if oh. anybody's interested in just taking a little 30-day break, join me there. Super exciting. I'm, I'm so glad you came on here and just talked about what you're doing and, and just the unique situation for first responders. And it sounds like it needs to be, we need more people to talk about it. We need more firefighters and police officers and ER workers and medical investigators, you know, everyone like just to be more vocal about it and, and just know that it's not weak, that it's actually making you stronger. hundred percent. That's exactly what I've learned over the last couple of years is I'm not alone. And as soon as I start talking about it, people are very excited to talk about it with me. So if I have to be that mouthpiece and the one that breaks the ice, I'm very happy to do it. Well, that's so great. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing your story and helping others. And I just think it's fantastic work you're doing. So thank you. Thanks.